Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. In all the years that I've been doing this radio show and all the years that I've been working in the business of happiness and positive psychology, I've really come to learn that we learn the most out of the most difficult, darkest, complicated challenges as well as our failures. And today's show, we're focusing on the wisdom that can be found and learned from failure. My first guest is Amy C. Edmondson. She is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School, a chair established to support the study of human interactions that lead to the creation of successful enterprises that contribute to the betterment of society. She is the author of a few books and one entitled Teaming, How Organizations Learn, Innovate, and Compete in the Knowledge Economy, Teaming to Innovate, and Building the Future, Big Teaming for Audacious Innovation. Amy received her PhD in organizational behavior. uh, Amy, just clarify this for one second because we have an AM in psychology and AB in engineering and design all from Harvard. Yes, that is right. And A-M means M-A in any other language. That's the Latin formation for a master's degree, the same as A-B is a Latin formation for the bachelor's degree. Well, there you go. I learned something new from that. God bless Harvard. (laughs) But Amy lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts with her husband, George Daly, a physician scientist at Harvard Medical School, and their two sons. Welcome. Sorry for my inquisitive, like, what, what is that? But... You know what? Inquiring minds want to know. I'm a big believer in curiosity. Me too. Me too. That's why I get to do what I do. Welcome. And, and you know, I, I, I love your background because it, it is um, 
it's vast. And it also, before you were doing the work that you're doing now, I did a little digging. You um, worked with Buckminster Fuller. Indeed, I did. And I am convinced that I got my early interest in failure and learning from failure uh, from the core of Bucky's message. Yeah, I, I, I would assume so. I mean, he is a he, he was a, a visionary and a character and probably worthy of a, a separate show. <laughs> but I, would, I was impressed with that because my, my first education is as an architectural designer. And I, I, my bachelor years were, were done in Boston as well at the Boston Architectural College. So That's wonderful. And I actually think that's not a coincidence then with what you're currently doing because the, the design thinking mindset is so crucial to the continued learning. I, I agree. And I also think that when we are focusing on external space, external organization, how we put spatial relationships together, color, texture, um, and the psychology of all that, it does tie into organizing internal space, um, albeit in a little bit different way, but it is, it, it is very similar. It is similar, and it's systems thinking. It's, it's thinking within a context and being very aware of the interrelationships among different parts. Agreed. Let's talk about failure and what many of us may not know about the joys of failure. <laughs> Where should we begin? <laughs> or the potential joys of failure, let's put it that way. That's right, because there's no getting around the fact that failure is not fun. None of us wake up in the morning and jump out of bed because we can't wait to start our day and see how many failures we can have. Clearly not. Um, and, and I think that that aversion and that, and that fear lead us to be often overly cautious. Right? So they lead us, we're so failure averse that we then miss opportunities as well. So why should we talk about there being at least a glimmer of joy in failure? And that is because that's where learning comes from. That's where discovery comes from. There's simply no innovation without some failures along the way. So failure, by its very nature, is not preventable. We think by being risk adverse and seeking psychological safety in ensuring that, you know, nothing we can do will go wrong actually mm. is a myth because we can't prevent it. We can't prevent nothing. We, 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 we can't prevent nothing uh, from going wrong. Things will go wrong. However, I, I want to draw some slightly finer distinctions because not all failure is good and not all failure is unavoidable. There are avoidable failures. I mean, I can, I can stand up right now and, and I see this cord connecting my computer to the wall. Um, I can see it, but I might suddenly start to think about something else and trip over that cord. I think that would be stupid. I think that I have the wherewithal to avoid that failure. And so I think we have to make a real distinction between kind of avoidable, preventable, non-celebrated types of failures and those generally live in a domain where enough knowledge exists uh, for us to do the right thing to avoid those failures. Um, so that's one type of failure, kind of let's just call it avoidable failures. The second type is the kind of complex type that really, despite the very best of our 
abilities and thinking and, and, and listening and working with others, a whole bunch of complex factors come together at once and produce a failure. Maybe we have, you know, bad weather, factors outside of our control, a bunch of things that never happened at the same time before, whatever, complex failures that we can do our best to be mindful about them, but we cannot avoid all of them. And then the third kind is what I would call intelligent failure. And those are the kind where absolutely they can't be avoided. Um, and in fact, the quality of them can be even better and better depending on how we manage them. And so intelligent failures are the results of, by the way, still undesired results of thoughtful forays into new terrain. So thoughtful experiments. No one's ever been here before. No one's tried this before. I'm, I'm experimenting with a new possibility. I'm pretty sure this might work, might yield fruit, and I'm wrong. It fails. That's okay. I've got to pick myself back up, move forward, try the next experiment. Those are intelligent failures. They need to be learned from. They need to be celebrated. Hmm. I'm jotting notes because it's making me think of other things I want to ask you. Um, but in terms of in, intelligent failure and in complex failure, I mean, I get the preventable ones, you know, don't trip over mm -hmm. the cord. Complex, I might say from a perspective of relationships could be marriages. Yes. <laughs> marriages are very complex indeed. <laughs> you think about all of the swirling emotions, the history, the the different mental models coming together, often in explosive ways, the things that each of us take for granted uh, that can just clash with things others take for granted. And by the way, marriages are, are a good illustration. So are complex collaborations across functional or, or expertise disciplines in the organizational setting. So relationships in general would fall into complex? Most relationships, yeah. not all relationships, but certainly um, most, any, any significant or meaningful relationship is fairly complex. I would and, agree. And then intelligent, you're really talking about um, a venture, a foray into the unknown you know, stepping over the threshold into into the forest um, mm -hmm. to try something new, to stretch oneself. Exactly. And, of course, all innovation and all science involve the, you know, the, the confronting of and willingness to deal productively with intelligent failure. And when we're talking about em emotional intelligence and social intelligence and people who are uh, I would say, let's call it works in progress. You know, maybe mm -hmm. maybe a young a young adult that may not possess all those tools and resources yet, and, and they have the choice to either numb or run away from failure right. or, or step into it. How how would you coach somebody to to, to move forward? You know, to propel forward mm -hmm. rather than backward. I like to describe this as the internal choice, which I think we have to try to make again and again, to play to win rather than to play not to lose. So we, we play not to lose when we try to keep ourselves entirely emotionally safe and safe from failure. And we want, we want to always be right and we want to always succeed and, and, uh, and, 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 and you know, do well. And ironically, that, that, that heartfelt desire can make it 
can lead us to not do as well as we otherwise would. In other words, we, when we choose not to take risks, when we choose not to do something that could end in failure, we limit ourselves. We limit our potential. And I, I would argue we even limit our potential happiness in that effort to protect our potential happiness. Oh, I agree. I agree that, 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 that it very much it constricts us. But, and, and we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, I want to just go back to something you said about the desire to be right. Because I mm. think that that right there is uh, a limiter. That, I, you know, that that's what uh, it keeps us in that safe zone, which ultimately leads us to a constricted life. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Amy C. Edmondson. She has several books. Her latest is Building the Future, Big Teaming for Audacious Innovation. And we're talking about failure, actually, finding happiness inversely. To learn more, you can visit Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School, and that's hbs.edu. On Twitter, that handle is at Amy C. Edmondson. Here come those tunes, and we will be right back. That's a promise. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about fun with failure. And I say that with a little humor in my voice because we're really talking about the serious business of how we learn when we step out there and risk and what failure can teach us with my guest, Amy C. Edmondson. She is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. She is an author. Her latest book is Building the Future, Big Teaming for Audacious Innovation. So Amy, prior to the break, you you touched upon something about wanting to be right. 
And then because we want to be right all of the time, at least most of us do, that that can constrict us and actually limit our curiosity and our risk-taking. Absolutely. In fact, I would go so far as to say it limits our happiness as well. Because at a, at a deep, you know, largely unconscious level, we are choosing to want to be right more than wanting to connect or to learn or to grow you know, or to really find out what we're, what we're capable of. And it's, it's quite limiting. So we have to be willing to, to be wrong. In fact, we have to celebrate being wrong because it's every time I'm wrong about something, I'm expanding my horizons. I'm learning something new. You know, I, I agree with you. And, you know, wanting to be right at the price of our own happiness. So the question becomes, do we want to be right or do we want to be happy? I mean, ideally both, but it doesn't <laughs> always work out that way. Yeah. I'm not saying we're going to be wrong all the time or that that's going to be, you know, the day in and day out experience. Clearly not. I think that most of us, particularly by the time you reach a certain age or level of expertise, there's a great deal of knowledge that you have and that should be celebrated and the most impressive and wise people that I've known through my career have been those who are still curious and still willing even you know we talked about Buckminster Fuller earlier even in his late 80s I never heard an adult say I don't know as often as he did I never heard him I mean I never heard anyone be so sort of happily curious and humble about the limits of even his knowledge at, at age 87. Well, is that not part of the beginner's mind? You know? Yes. And it's in that wonderful. state, that, that state of the beginner's mind, one says, I don't know, but then one is, is completely fertile. Completely fertile and completely willing to, so curiosity and humility go hand in hand. And they're both great sources of joy. I mean, true humility is not, oh, woe is me, I'm, I don't know anything, I'm terrible. It's, it's a kind of honest self-appraisal of what I bring and what I still need to learn. Yeah. I do a lot of groups. Sometimes they're quite large groups. And I sometimes go into these groups saying, I have this new thing I want to try. It's either going to go great or it's going to mm -hmm. be an epic failure. But we're going to have fun regardless. So that's intelligent failure, right? That's, gee, I've never tried this before. I have a pretty good sense that it might work or I wouldn't waste your time with it. And I don't know for sure how it's going to go. Absolutely. Intelligent failure. If it goes wrong, it's intelligent failure. If it goes right, it's innovation. Yeah. Or just good, clean, squeaky fun, you know? <laughs> but let's talk about why learning from failure is an essential skill. Because we know that learning, uh, the pursuit of lifelong learning, contributes to our happiness. Stretching our minds is a good thing. But specifically from failure, and you mentioned the word humility as it relates to Buckminster Fuller, but I'm curious as to why we have to learn from the what we perceive as the negative side of things there is a school of thought and i would subscribe to it that failure has more information than success so if something goes well i can you know i can celebrate that and feel good about that but i may not know exactly why it went well i think it went well because i did xyz and then good things happened 
but a whole lot of other factors may have contributed. However, if, 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 there's, if something goes wrong, if I did X and I thought I'd get Y and I really wanted Y and I didn't get Y, then I'm forced to reevaluate my theory. Right? I'm forced to say, hmm, I guess X doesn't cause Y after all. Well, where did, what did I miss? What could I try next? What might go differently? So you can readily see that there's at least the potential for more insight, more learning from failure. Again, that doesn't make it fun. Really, most of us, myself included, and then some, would prefer to succeed than fail. And we have to be open to the possibility of, of failure if we're, if we're having any experiments at all. Right? If we're pushing our, our growth envelope at all, we know yeah. we're going to have failures. I'm wondering, as you're speaking, about the brain's predisposition predisposition or the, the brain's negativity bias in, in, mm-hmm. in that we you know we go to the negative and this is how we attach our attention in the media you know we pay attention to mm-hmm. when bad things happen we tend to um, uh, have a negative outlook on things sometimes more often than not and I'm wondering if the failure if the learning from failure comes from that same place as well yeah it, I think it does in that, I mean, it's what you just said, our, our sort of um, negativity bias um, leads, we're quite drawn toward the negative, but we also want to distance ourselves from it, Yeah, which makes it hard for us to learn from failure in a just routine, healthy way, because we want to believe, you know, our first instinct is, okay, so it went wrong. Who can I blame? Someone else, not me. Yeah, it's so external. <laughs> it's external. It's something else. Maybe it was the weather, circumstances outside my control, and maybe it was. But without the willingness to at least take a little bit of time and honest thought to say, well, perhaps I contributed to this outcome. Right? What, what was it that, that I did that may have been at least one of the contributing factors? And why did I do that? And might there be a different way for me to act going forward. That's, that's where learning comes from. I like what you said about avoiding blame because we do tend to put our failures on external sources, not recognizing our own hand in it. And we always have a hand in it. We always have a hand in it. Even if it's just what we didn't say or didn't think about, uh, you know, from from our vast storehouse of knowledge and experience. There's mm-hmm. always some small way and sometimes large way that we've contributed to the unpleasant outcome. So when it comes to um, psychological safety, you know, and mm-hmm. feeling as though we are um, safe within our experience, how does that desire, it's really an unspoken desire, right? It's more... Um, um, intuitive, how mm. does that play into the unwillingness or willingness to take risk? And what, what, what makes those kinds of people, the ones who are really willing to you know, step out there, to jump out of the plane with the parachute? See, I have defined psychological safety, and I've studied this in many different workplaces over the years. I've defined it as a belief that I will not be humiliated or otherwise punished by my peers or boss for speaking up with work-relevant, well-intentioned questions, concerns, ideas, mistakes, failures, 
etc. So it's not about psychological safety is not about feeling safe from all possible harm or negativity. It's about feeling interpersonally safe for confronting the real issues. So in many ways, it's a it's a it's not always a you know a pleasant or positive state. It's but it is always a growth state. So it describes a climate where I believe and we together believe we can bring the tough stuff to bear here. We can talk about it. We can um, we can fully dive into the very complexity of the work of the interpersonal relationships uh, that are present and we can and we can admit to the not completely you know good parts of ourselves and the work you know but when i think of psychological safety i also think of the work of Carl Rogers and this very humanistic approach that the individual possesses all the tools and resources necessary to solve his or her problems. That doesn't mean that they alone can solve the problem, but that, I think, being in that state of understanding that we really are more powerful than we give ourselves credit to be, paired with this notion of I'm going to risk, I need to risk in order to grow, is what makes the failure or the possibility of failure tolerable. Absolutely right. I need to risk in order to grow. And so I, I think you're right to mention Rogers. And it's, it's a reminder that without a safe container of some kind, we can't we just aren't as humans able to take the small and large risks that are needed to allow us to grow and to, and to achieve higher levels of, of happiness really and fulfillment. And the second part, which you also alluded to is it's got to be at least partly social it's, it's got to be done with others. We cannot do this kind of work all by ourselves, you know, alone in a room. We need to be willing to take those interpersonal risks to speak up, to ask for help, to, uh, articulate our, our thinking and get feedback on how we're doing and are we doing, where do we need to, uh, where do we need to make some changes in how we're thinking? You said something really important. We're almost out of time, but I want to just touch back on this for a moment that the failure alone that happens in isolation and loneliness and in withdrawing from is not what we're talking about. We're talking about leaning in, engaging, and being connected. And through that, the failures leading to a happier place. Absolutely right. We're talking about a place where we can acknowledge in the presence of others that bad things happen, some of them because we really messed up, some of them because we're all experimenting together in the new uh, terrain, um, and, and some of them for complex other reasons. But it's okay. It's okay. Let's work through them. Let's learn from them. Let's emerge in a stronger, better place. Beautifully said. Amy C. Edmondson, thank you for joining us. To learn more about Amy's work, please visit her at Harvard Business School. That's hbu.edu. You can look her up there. You can just Google her. She's all over the Internet. And on Twitter, that handle is at Amy C. Edmondson. And Amy Edmondson's latest book is Building the Future, Big Teaming for Audacious Innovation. Thanks for being with us, Amy. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. 
We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Cayman has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the gifts and challenges of failure, how and why we learn from our mistakes. My next guest is Jessica Leahy. She's an educator, writer, and speaker. Jessica is an English and writing teacher, correspondent for The Atlantic, commentator for Vermont Public Radio, and writes the parent-teacher conference column for The New York Times. Jessica is also the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. This is a subject I love to talk about because we fail. Part of being human is we, we, we do, we try, we fail, we get back up, we do again. Right, and it, what's so funny is how embarrassed we get about it. Um, there, you know, there are even stories of failures I've had that uh, that it takes a bit of prodding for me to tell because I'm so ashamed of the times when I've made mistakes. But honestly, they've been some of my best learning opportunities. Indeed. So what inspired you to write The Gift of Failure? Um, I've been a teacher for a really long time, and I had been teaching middle school for about five years when I sort of realized that my my students were increasingly afraid to make mistakes. And, uh, you know, a lot of that comes down to sort of expectations and perfectionism, but a lot of it came down to the fact that they were just so used to having everything, all the consequences of their mistakes cleaned up after them that sort of making mistakes without a net in my classroom was so frightening to them. So, you know, and then I realized to my horror that apparently I was doing the same thing to my own children. I was overparenting <laughs> my own children and teaching them that, you know, that that you don't make mistakes. And so I need, I personally needed a book that was sort of a very how to um, turn the ship around sort of a, a, teach kids, allow myself um, and, and my students and my own children to treat uh, failure as a real learning experience and, and tap a little bit into some of the stuff that can happen when you do that, when you think in a sort of more intellectually brave way. 
You know, what's interesting as, as parents, because I'm a parent as well, that we are part of the problem, that we mm-hmm. so desperately want and expect the kids to do and be better than ourselves, that in essence, we are crippling them with that desire or well, by that desire. That for them. I mean, that's what they see, you know, there we're, uh, you know, we not only don't want to make any mistakes ourselves, but a lot of parents, and, you know, it's really a horrible thing to do to kids, but a lot of parents really see their kids as the final arbiter on their own success. That, you know, it's really great to be able to tell people that our kids, you know, have gotten into the best colleges and are on the elite traveling soccer team, and, you know, somehow that's that's our way of saying, oh, look, I'm really killing it on this parenting thing. Um, (laughs) We don't want want people to know about our kids' mistakes. And and they see that. They see that they're not, you know, supposed to screw up because then, you know, how are we going to – how are we going to feel about our parenting and how are we going to feel about them? And then they get all bound up with, you know, does my, do my mom and dad just love me because of, you know, the, the accomplishments and the report card and, and that kind of thing. It's, it's a terrible cycle to get into. And two things come to mind. The first is that when we fail, we feel shame, mm-hmm. right? And, and shame is, is, you know, Brene Brown, mm-hmm. I think, describes it perfectly about, you know, that, that we are bad, that the essence mm-hmm. of who we are is bad right. because of our shame. When, in fact, the failure is a, an external thing. It's a happening. Right. Yeah. I, what was really interesting is uh, a couple months ago, um, I, I was really sort of pushed by, uh, I wrote something for the virgin.com website, and, and Richard Branson um, had asked me to write about my biggest failure. And, you know, I'm pretty open about this stuff, but there was one thing, a story I hadn't told to anyone but my students. And that was that when I first wrote this book, the first draft um, wasn't very good. <laughs> it was, as my editor put it at the time, unpublishable. And, um, you know, there that was such a shame-filled experience for me. And somehow, I keep forgetting the fact that the way that story turns out is that I said, look, I need, give me another chance. Let me write three chapters. And if I, if these three chapters are good, then we can move forward. And she let me have this opportunity to try to make it work. And those three chapters, you know, I, I asked for all of the feedback, even the really bad stuff. I was like, give it to me. Tell me how I can learn. Tell me how I can make it better. And those three chapters worked, and that turned into five chapters, which turned into the rest of the book. And, you know, it it ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. But for some reason, that successful learning process is not the part of the story that I tend to fixate on. What I tend to fixate on is, oh, my gosh, I'm a failure as a writer because my first draft wasn't very good. Well, of course my first draft wasn't very good. It was the first time I'd ever written a book. You know, that's that's where our brains go is to that horrible, shameful you know, I wrote an unpublishable book and forget the second half of the story, which is, wow, I learned a lot from that. And next time I write a book, the learning curve is going to be much flatter. And it is in the persistence, the willingness to try to yeah. attempt. I mean, it's not, I, I don't even think it's trying. We either we do or we don't. So you, right. you did it. It didn't have the outcome you would have hoped. Um, but it, boy, it stretched you. It tested yeah, you. And, and that's, 
that's the part that I hope my children see. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book, there's an entire chapter on, on, you know, please let the one place that we focus on our personal goals over grades and accomplishments like grades, external motivators like grades, be at home. And, and the one thing I try to do here in front of my kids is set goals for myself that are a little bit scary because I don't want them to ever see me as the kind of person that, you know, only takes the safe gambles, the, you know, that doesn't, doesn't ever stretch myself because that's, you know, that constant process of learning is what we need to be modeling for our kids. It's amazing to me when I get questions when I'm out doing speaking engagements. I got a question recently from a parent saying, you know, my kids just don't like to read for pleasure. What is that? I try so hard. I get them all these books. And I said, well, do they see you read for pleasure? And she had to admit that, no, her children never see her read for pleasure. And I said, well, how are we, you supposed to tell them that they're supposed to love reading if they don't see you love reading? Um, that modeling for our kids is just such an important part of what we do. You know, I want to I want to talk to you about that because I I I, I love reading. My children do not <laughs> like reading, um, and one of them is in college, so that is kind of interesting. But I I also look back on how I developed and the modeling that I had, and I didn't develop a love of reading until I was an adult, till I was good right. and ready, even though right. it was modeled for me. That's so interesting. I, I've talked to a lot of people like that. Um, I, I lo- also love to write about literacy, and um, you know, I, it's such a big topic for me. And yet I do run into a lot of adults who said, you know what, it wasn't until I got older and I realized that reading didn't just have to be books that were assigned to me. I think that's the trap we fall into is we um, – I, I talked to a mom recently who said, I need for you to make a list for me of books that my kids should be reading because I just – think they should be reading really challenging books. And, and I said, well, what does your kid like to read? And they said, oh, my kid really likes to read um, this. There's a, a series of books uh, uh, by Jeff Kinney, and uh, they're, you know, very cartoony, and, and the language is a little more simplistic. And I said, well, why aren't they allowed to read those? And she said, well, I threw those away. I gave them away because I don't think those are challenging enough. And I said, you know, what you're, what she's effectively doing is killing off her kids' love of learning because we have to allow kids at a certain point to say, these are the things I want to read and let them rediscover that reading is, is such an amazing experience in, um, you know, disappearing inside of another character or to, or learning something about something you've never experienced before. And if everything we're giving them and, and, and sort of pushing on them is stuff that they don't want to read or turning everything into an assignment, then I don't know that there's much hope to getting them to really love reading. Let's step into the over-parenting territory because yeah. this is something that so many of us, particularly in um, – well, actually, I was going to say Western culture, but I take that back. E- every culture, mm-hmm. you know, has yes. the quintessential tiger parent or tiger mom. You know, we have yep. we all have that image in our minds when we flash on that. But why doesn't it work? <laughs> well, it doesn't work for a few reasons. It turns out, um, that, put very very simply, that anything we do to try to control another human being causes them to sort of dig their heels in and stop wanting to do that thing that they're trying to be controlled to do. And it turns out that, and you know, Dan Pink covers this beautifully in Drive and in the research that he does, that extrinsic motivators, whether that's grades or honors or, you know, the positive stuff and the negative stuff, grounding, um, surveillance, all of those things 
cause kids, cause anyone, to be less motivated to to do the thing it is that we want them to do. And it turns out what we really need is intrinsic motivation. And intrinsic motivation needs three things. It needs kids need to feel autonomous, which means they have control over their environment and the things that they're doing to a limit, of course. And they need to feel competent, which is not the same thing as confident. Um, We can't talk kids into feeling competent. That just happens through experience. And they need to feel connected, meaning they need to know that we love them no matter what, that we're not just, we don't just love them based on their grades and their accomplishments. Um, and if, if we can give kids a little more control and help them feel competent and f- help them feel like they have some more control over their world, we stand a much better chance of helping them want to learn, want to read, want to do these other things. Um, and, you know, that's a really hard thing to do, to step back and have some faith in our kids that they'll do the right thing because it feels as a parent like the stakes are so high it's so scary we don't want them to fail because what about college and what about you know <laughs> these things that it feels like so dire and the media wants us to feel like these things are so dire and they're actually kids you know kids have to fail that's how childhood works and uh no matter how much we don't want them to fail that it, it just doesn't work to set them up that way it's not just kids that have to fail. We all have to fail. We all have to know what it's like to have a skinned knee, yep. get back up, dust it off, and and move on and continue and continue to um, strive uh, for something better. We're going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with Jessica Leahy. Leahy. She is the author of The Gift of Failure. To learn more, please visit www.jessicaleahy.com. On Facebook, that page is Jessica Potts Leahy. And on Twitter, the handle is at Jess Leahy. Here come those tunes. We will be right back. And that is a promise. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the gifts and challenges of failure, how and why we learn from our mistakes with Jessica Leahy, who is the author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. So Jessica, prior to the break, we were talking about overparenting and why it doesn't work. Uh, You had moved into... um, extrinsic versus intrinsic motivators, um, including autonomy, competence, and connection. And during the break, you said something that is fascinating to me and I think really worth talking about, and that is frustration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's, this, uh, there's a researcher who has looked at sort of how kids cope when they're um, faced with something that is frustrating and and those children, their response from the parent that's sitting there with them. The kids who have a parent who step in and like immediately fix it for them, those kids never really learn how to sit with their frustration and think, okay, no, 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 I can figure this out. I can, you know, reread the instructions or I can, you know, really rely on myself to figure this out. And the important thing about that is that when those kids get to my classroom, whether that's in middle school or high school or whatever, the kids who are able to sit with frustration are much more teachable because there's this concept called desirable difficulties, Um, difficulties that are just a little bit beyond a kid's ability level and their ability to sort of sit with the frustration that goes along with that and work it out for themselves. Um, Their brains... It's a complicated story, but the way that information then gets into their brain and gets into their long-term memory is much more efficient. So you can have the smartest kid in the world and an average kid, and if the one that's more able to get frustrated and say, no, 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 I can figure this out for myself, that kid is going to do better. Because as we were talking about before, you know, just having frustrating experiences and just having, you know, failing, that's not what's important here. It's our response to yeah. making mistakes, our response to frustration, our response to failure. That's what resilience is, that sort of evolution that we can make about, you know, okay, well, I tried X, Y, and Z. Now I clearly need to try something different and, um, and moving forward with that. That evolution, that adaptation is, is sort of what determines how we're going to do in the end. So the response to failure is actually more, exp- more important than just repeated failures, obviously. And what's interesting to me is that when we get ourselves into a situational pickle, um, we, we, we got ourselves into it, right? 99.9 tenths percent of the time. And I'm, I'm talking about the average condition. We kind mm-hmm. of, we find our way there through circumstance, mm-hmm. which implies that if we can get ourselves into it, mm-hmm. that we can get ourselves out of it. Right. There's actually some really neat research on, you know, people who feel like they don't have the ability to get their, themselves out of it. That's something called learned helplessness. And it's funny, I actually wrote an article one time about kids who say, I can't do it, when we know that from just a dexterity standpoint or a competence standpoint that they can. And I was talking to a therapist, and I, I was calling it feigned helplessness. And the therapist said, no, 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 this is called 
learned helplessness, and guess who teaches them that? <laughs> the parents do. Um, the more we rescue our kids, every time we step in to rescue them, what we're really saying to them is, I don't trust you. I don't think you have the competence to handle that. Here, let me do it for you. And those kids, in the end, are less likely to feel like they have the ability to get themselves out of that pickle you were just talking about. Um, and we as parents, we're the ones who teach them that. Yep. I, 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 and I'm thinking of a situation with my uh, older child. I have a daughter that started her freshman year in college this past fall. And she, the first week of, the, uh, of arrival on campus, she knew he, she had made a terrible mistake. And she wanted mom to fix it. <laughs> and I said, I'm not fixing it. You yeah. go figure it out. I will support you. Whatever decision that you make, right. I will support you. But it's not my problem. Yeah. Yeah, there are increasingly more and more kids showing up at college and just throwing their hands up in the air and not even knowing how to solve the most, the simplest problem. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like that kid who, you know, when you, they say, Mom, where are my pants? And you say, they're on the floor of your room. And they stand there and they say, no, they're not. I can't find them. I mean, it's just a grown-up version of that. Yeah. Well, yep. it was the best thing I ever did for this daughter of mine because within a week she had of, of that, she had applied for a transfer and yeah. she transferred herself across the country at the winter break and she did it all by herself and she made a good choice. Yeah, the stories I've been hearing um, of parents who have, who have stepped back and said, you know, it's time for me. I have made a mistake. I have been doing too much for you, and I'm very, very sorry. I've taught you to not rely on yourself, and that stops now because I trust you. I believe you are competent. I believe you can handle it. So go forth, my child, and, and you fix this. And the stories that I hear um, have been incredible of kids who have really said, oh, wow, you trust me to fix this myself? Then I, I, maybe I can fix it myself. And then they do. It's amazing. It, it, it is amazing. And I think as parents, that those are the markers that make us proud, that it's not yeah. the, the full ride scholarship. It's not the A, you know, the 4.0 GPA or the A's on the report card, or you know, like, as you said, traveling with the, you know, the, the hot club team. Mm -hmm. It is really the ability to find oneself out of situations right. successfully. And not just the things that make us proud of our kids, but the things that make our kids proud of themselves. You know, when I think back about big, accomplishment, big accomplishments in my life, there, you know, there, have, there are some things that, you know, I'm really proud of, but actually the things I'm proudest of were like when I was 20 and there was a railroad strike, but I really needed to get to this airport to pick someone up, and I figured it out on my own. I used a network of buses, and I, you know, I just, I figured it out on my own, and, and it seems like such a small thing, but for me, it was a huge growth moment. Um, those are the things that our kids are going to look back on and say, yeah, I'm a competent person. I can handle this. And, you know, I think this applies not only to the relationships with our children, but all relationships. You know, we mm -hmm. tend to become comfortable and complacent in a lot of our primary relationships. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of our husbands and our, our right, wives, yeah. our partners. Yeah. And we tend to want to overdo or overcompensate in those relationships and not give the other enough credit. Oh, my gosh. It's... <laughs> Uh, how did you know that's exactly the biggest uh, sticking point in my marriage? You know, I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> I like things done a certain way. And my husband and I have been married now for 20 years, but it's, there, has been a, there have been many times where he's just looked at me and he said, you're fairly sure that I'm 
stupid, aren't you? And because I want to step in and say, no, 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 you don't load the dishwashers, the dishes in the dishwasher that way, or I'll just take care of it for you. And, you know, those are the things we say to our children when we're overparenting our children, and yet we do it to our spouses and our friends, and, you know, and it's, it's something that we have to stop doing because we need the people around us to know that we respect them. And when we undermine their success by acting like they're not competent, that's not respect. It's true. It's true. I've got it going on in my own house. You know, <laughs> one of the areas is the laundry. You know, I love folding laundry. I find it very meditative. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when the laundry builds up, I'm like, why doesn't anybody helping here? And they're like, well, you're just going to refold what we do. So we're going to just let you do it. So I shoot oh, myself I've... in the foot by, t- you know, trying to control yeah. it. Well, my husband does not fold towels correctly, so I completely feel your pain. But actually, I just, uh, on my website, there's uh, at jessicalahey.com, there's a post about called Special Care Instructions about that. And I learned something very important. Dry erase markers work great on the outside of the washer and the dryer. If you wipe down your washer and dryer and then write the instructions for laundry on the outside of the washer and dryer with dry erase markers, no one has any excuses for saying they don't know how to do the laundry because all of the instructions are right there. Hilarious. This is <laughs> this is perfect. You know, I'm going to just repeat that to send everybody over to jessicalahey.com if you want to learn tips for laundry and better living, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it worked out pretty well in our house, actually. It, it, it is very funny. And, you know, my partner who I've been with for many years, he says to me, you know, like, you know, I finally, after all these years, I can do the towels in the right thirds that you like. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's very, very funny. Well, we are almost out of time, but before we go, I want to uh, ask you about putting these pieces together. What sure. does all of this look like in practice? If you have to send um, our listeners off with a um, two-minute speed coaching session, have at it, girl. Sure. Well, actually, there's a story in the book that's very specifically about what this looks like when you put it all together. So my son, who was having trouble in math and not getting his homework in on time, um, got his homework done beautifully one night, and I found out the next morning when I walked downstairs that he had left it on the coffee table in the living room, and I had to be at school in a half an hour anyway for something else completely. And I knew I could not take that homework to school for him, and it it freaked me out, and um, various people told me that that's just not the way we treat members of our family. We help them out. We have their back. And when my son got home and I did not take the homework to him at school, he walked through the door and I asked how his day was and he said it went great. Because And I said, well, what about the homework? And he said, well, you know, I didn't get to go out to recess with my friends and my teacher wouldn't let me go out to recess even after I finished the homework. He said, this has been going on long enough and it was time for me to figure out a strategy for how I was going to remember my homework every day. And he came up with the idea, which, believe me, was not the first time I I had suggested it, but he came up with the idea of a checklist for coming up, um, for putting down everything he needed to remember before school every day. And, you know, not taking that homework, or if I had taken that homework into school, I would have felt so great about my parenting for that day, right? I would have felt like, oh, I rescued my kid. He didn't get in trouble with his teacher. The kids didn't tease him for forgetting stuff. Um, but that conversation with his teacher and that strategizing and that planning for the future, that coming up with his own strategy never would have happened. And so in the end, I think as parents, it's time for us to say, 
you know, these things that make me feel really, really good in the moment may not be the best long-term strategies for our kids. What if we let them we let them feel the consequences of their mistakes and we let them feel the natural sort of follow-through of making errors and let them strategize for the future. Um, I think our kids will learn a lot more. And in the end, we do get to feel good about our parenting because then we have this experience where our kid transfers to the right college and does it all on her own and she gets to feel competent and we get to feel proud that's where we really get to feel good about our parenting is in that long that long haul picture not in those day-to-day moments where it's really easy for us to rescue beautifully said thank you for being with me today jessica Leahy. to learn more about the gift of failure please visit www.jessicalahey.com on facebook the page is jessica potts Leahy, and on twitter at jess Leahy. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Amy Edmondson and Jessica Leahy, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet and KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook. Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.